For those of you who haven't been with us on a Sunday evening, what we go through on Sunday evening is different doctrines of Scripture. And so we started off in January actually looking at the doctrine of Scripture. I mean, by doctrine is just teaching, the teachings about Scripture. And so we looked at for five weeks how the Scriptures are authoritative, how they're sufficient, how they're clear, how they're necessary, and how they're inerrant. We moved on to talking about the doctrine of God. What is the scripture after laying that foundation for the truthfulness of God's word? What does the Bible say about who God is? And then we moved on to what the Bible says about who we are as mankind. We looked at gender, male and female. We looked at the nature of sin. We looked at inherited guilt. We looked at the origin of sin. And now we're beginning to look at the person of Jesus Christ. And we are not going to get through all of these notes here tonight. Um, but what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks looking at these notes that you have in front of us tonight, looking at just who Jesus Christ is. And then we're going to be looking at what Jesus Christ has done, his work of redemption. And so that will take us a few weeks to get through those things, probably to the end of the summer, at least. And so it's this is a topic that I am really looking forward to it. And I'm glad that uh, that you're here tonight as we, as we begin this study, because the topic of who Jesus is is so very important. Every false religion, whether they call themselves Christian or not, every false religion that that views Jesus in some way always has a distorted view of who Jesus is. It doesn't matter if they're Muslim, if they're Jehovah's Witnesses, if they're Mormons, or um, even some in the Word of Faith movement, you know, the extreme fringes of charismatic movement have a of an unbiblical view of who Jesus is, a distorted view of who Jesus is. And if we just look at what the scriptures say about who Jesus is, it clears away so much of the garbage that's out there. And no doubt you've had someone come to your door recently, um, whether they were dressed nicely, whether there's some, some nice ladies from the Watchtower Society gave you a book or a magazine and invited you to one of their Kingdom Hall events they have a, a distorted view of who Jesus is. Have you ever found yourself wanting to, to say to them, look, Jesus is, is not just, you know, he's not just an angel. He's not a created being. He's not, not the brother of Lucifer, but rather Jesus is the true son of God. And maybe you've even opened your Bible with them and you've turned to John 1 and you said, look here, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God. The word was with, with God and the word was God. And maybe they open up their Bible, the New World Translation, and it says the world, and he was a God. And I go, well, where do I go now? Okay, their translation butchers that verse. And so what I hope to do, these topics on Sunday evenings, we're talking about the person of Christ, is not so much trying to counteract the bad theology that's out there and the false religions and the cults, but rather it's going to be instructive for us to be able to defend our faith. So these are... 13 pages of notes, and if you look through those notes, it's almost exclusively scripture. Just verses, and then what does that verse say? So 13 pages of who is Jesus, biblically. And so this is going to be a real joy to go through here together. Now, as we get started, the first one we're going to go through is going to take us rather quickly compared to the rest. Point number one on your sheet we're going to look at here tonight is that Jesus is human. Jesus is human. Uh, this is one thing that I think uh, we can all agree on and, and see quite readily in the scriptures that Jesus was human. A few subpoints that we have. Number one, he was born. Okay, Matthew 1.18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That is, Jesus was born. 
His mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together and she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was born like human beings are born. Number two, he grew in wisdom and stature. Luke 2.40 says this, the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom and the favor of God was upon him. And 2.52 in Luke says, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus, like human beings, was growing, maturing in both his stature, both his height and his ability to reason, to think, his wisdom. Okay, number three, he grew tired or grew weary and slept. Jacob's well was there, it says in John 4, 6. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And then Mark 37 to 38 When a great windstorm arose, the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. So Jesus still had to sleep. He wasn't so so divine, you could say, that he was the, the son of God. He didn't need sleep, he didn't need food, didn't grow tired. No, we know he was human. Number four, he thirsted and was hungry. John 19, 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And then Matthew 4, 2, stating the obvious, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. Okay, he was hungry. He was hungry and he thirsted. Things that we do as human beings. Number five, he was sorrowful. He was sorrowful. John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus was troubled when he considered what Judas was about to do and what he was about to face, God's wrath. And that's pictured in Mark 14 in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, Jesus is praying in the garden. He wants his disciples to just just stay awake one hour and pray with him. But they're so weary and tired that they continue to fall asleep. And that account is described in Mark 14, 33 and 34. You have it written down there. It says that Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. And he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Okay? Jesus was was very sorrowful when he contemplated his betrayal. He was very sorrowful. He He was distressed. He was in agony when he contemplated the crucifixion. We must realize the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus came to give his life, it wasn't if he was going to come down. He's just going to come down and do his thing. He wasn't even going to get a scratch on him. And, and so what? He's going to kill him. He's God. He's going to rise again. It's no big deal, right? No sweat. But here we have the Son of God. We have him being born. We have him growing up in wisdom and stature. We have him hungered and thirsty and asleep. And then we have him here in agony and in distress as he considers the crucifixion, as he considers not only physical death and physical torment, but suffering the wrath of God in human flesh, suffering the almighty wrath of God. 
Jesus was human. Next, number six. We know he's human because he died. God does not die, but Jesus, being human, died. Luke 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And number seven, Jesus is still human. He rose in a human body. Luke 24, 39, after Jesus had resurrected from the dead, it says, he says, see my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And so Jesus, and there's other pastors there, Jesus not only was born as a human, but he died as a human being and he rose again as a human being and he lives forever, even right now, the right hand of the Father in human form. And he's going to return again in that same human body. And so that's the first thing the scriptures teach about who Jesus is, that he is human. The second thing we're going to look at is more difficult. In the sense that many false religions, in fact, most of them, deny this point, that Jesus is God. Okay, Jesus is God. That's the second thing that we are going to look at here tonight. Now, so much of the information that we have on these handouts that we're going to go through, the study we're going through, is talking about how Jesus is God, how he's, defi- how he's divine, how he's eternal, how he's the creator, how his authority to heal and to forgive sins, has authority to, to calm the waves, how he's referred to um, by, by the fulfillment of prophecies, go to show that he is divine, he is the true son of God. Even the title for himself, being the son of man, points to his divinity, being divine, being God. But yet not only do we have all these other evidences and proves we have direct statements and so this second point about who jesus is are direct statements that scripture says that jesus is god john 1 1 probably the most famous we'll begin with that one beginning of john's gospel it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god now, it doesn't get any, any clearer than that. What John says here in the beginning, in the beginning, that is, it sounds like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But he says, in the beginning was the word. The same word that we have spoken in Genesis 1 that created this earth was in the beginning. And the word was with God. And he says the word was God. And here we have in this first verse of the gospel of John, this idea that God exists in more than one person. And that how can the word be God and how can the word be with God from the beginning? And this is the one of the great truths of scripture that boggle the mind when we consider it. Now this verse is mistranslated in the New World Translation. If you're talking to Jehovah's Witnesses and they have their Bible in front of them, they're going to say, no, it is the word was a God. And they're going to put an at in there saying the word was God. Now, when you talk to them, um, chances are, I've never spoken to a Jehovah's Witness that ever knew the Greek language. Every single 
Greek scholar there. Even if you take, if you go, if you go to Bible Gateway, for instance, and you go to John one one, and you and you you can pick all the different translations on Bible Gateway. You can pick the Greek, and you can take the Greek for John one one, and you paste it in Google, and you say translate, and Google translates it this way: the word was God. That's the proper way to interpret. It. That's how Greeks would understand it. That is a good translation, but they must put in the ad God to satisfy their theology that Jesus was a created being because you can't have Jesus being God in their theology. They deny that truth. And so they change their translation, but they have no basis to do so. John 1.18, later, later in that same chapter, John says, no one has ever seen God, but he says, he continues, the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known. It's just strange how he puts that together. Not only do you have the word being God, the word with God, we have now God and the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And again, speaking about Jesus Christ. John twenty twenty eight. Whenever Thomas, who originally doubted Jesus and his resurrection, sees him in the flesh. And what does he see, say to Jesus? Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Again, a direct call to Jesus as being God. And Jesus said, no, 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 you got it all wrong. No, Jesus accepted that title. Romans 9, 5 says this. It says, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. There we have Romans 9, 5 saying it so clearly that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is God overall. And again, a direct statement about Jesus Christ being God. Titus 2, 13, another one. He says here, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this phrase here called God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it's also in Second Peter 1, 1. Let's look at that one together. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, someone could tend to say, well, he's talking about two different people. He's talking about God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. As in, there, he's not just talking about our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, but our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, the problem is that doesn't work in the original language. It doesn't work when we read it in English. We understand what that means. But even in the original language, when you have two nouns that are separated by this word and, and those nouns are what they call anarthrous. They don't have a, a the in front or an or a ah. They're just the two nouns by themselves, with that and in the middle. They always refer to that same individual. That is a rule that is upheld in the Greek language 100% of the time. It is never violated. So when he says our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, it is taking those two terms, God and Savior, and it is applying it to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you wanted to sound really scholarly to your friends, you can Google the Granville Sharp construction. Okay, the Granville Sharp construction. We have two anarthrous nouns separated by that and. It's, it's using those same two terms to describe that one person. And then a scholar named Granville Sharp 
uh, discovered that and, and demonstrated that 100% of the case in the Greek language, um, it's referring to the same individual. So we have here our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, both in Titus 2.13 and 2 Peter 1.1. Hebrews 1.8, another interesting one. Okay, we've probably heard of some of these, but Hebrews 1.8 is another passage that ascribes deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what Hebrews 1.8 says. It quotes the Old Testament, but before it quotes the Old Testament, it says this, but of the Son, he says. Okay, so before he quotes Psalm 45.6, the author of Hebrews says, but God says this of the Son, of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? Of the Son, he says this, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. There we have again, God being uh, the term God, the name God, quality and character of God being ascribed to the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So there we have seven verses directly referring to Jesus Christ as God. It's not just the New Testament. Isaiah 9.6. We know Isaiah 9.6. We, we, we remember this verse during the Christmas season. We sing about it. Um, and it also is quoted in the, in the Gospel of Matthew as being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Isaiah 9.6 says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Don't forget the mighty God in there. This is talking about Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy. The child that born was Emmanuel, God with us. And he'll be called Mighty God. So now we have direct terms referring to Jesus as God. We have other verses. Colossians 2.9 says this, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells Bodily. And it's talking there about our Lord Jesus Christ. In the Lord Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity, that which is divine, the substance, the essence that is Godness, that, that qualifies and quantifies who God is, dwells bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. We're almost done. Philippians 2, 6 to 8. It says, though he was, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So there it describes who Jesus is. Being in the form of God, but did he not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Rather, he limited himself, not by emptying himself, not by, by, by giving up his divine attributes, not by not becoming God, but rather by taking on human flesh. The verse tells us what happened. It says, by taking the form of a servant, he emptied himself and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Hebrews 1.3, the last one we'll look at in this section. 
It says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of the nature of God is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the scriptures tell us quite clearly over and over and over again. It's not just John 1, 1. Over and over again tells that Jesus is God. Now, if that is causing some kind of brain cramp where we just can't grab a hold of it, it just, it just can't be true. This can't be true because we know we know God is there and God can't come down in human form. God can't come into his creation. God wouldn't do this. And so he just can't be. And so we must be misunderstanding those verses. And again, the problem is not, well, we got a brain cramp, so the word of God is wrong. The problem is our mind is too limited to grasp the truth of Scripture. Anytime we buck against something that the Scripture teaches, guess what? We're always wrong. We're always wrong. The scriptures are always right. They never fail. Anytime we have a misunderstanding with the scriptures, anytime that we don't get it, it's not the scripture's fault. We don't need to go back and try to retranslate these dozen or so verses to try to make sense of them because, well, Jesus can't be God in human flesh. He can't do that. God is, God is omniscient. He's all powerful. He, he can't come in human form. Rather, we need to conform our minds to what the scripture says. We need to humble ourselves and embrace this truth. And so if you're speaking with Muslims, with Mormons or JWs, and they say, well, that just can't be. That's, that's illogical. It doesn't make sense. It's not our job to try to understand the whole inner workings of who God is, but rather to offer them the word of God. And the advantage that we have is that Muslims believe that the word of God is contained in the scriptures. They think that we, we've corrupted its interpretation, but they still revere this book. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, they still believe the Bible. Other religions that distort who Jesus is, they still hold to this as some kind of authority. And so we must bring them back to the word of God and show them that they are the ones who are denying the truthfulness of the scriptures. Now, there's one more. I just want to do number three before we end tonight. This is a shorter one. I want to look at number three. Because so often when we come to some of these verses, and if, and if you have people coming to your door trying to preach to you another Jesus, I, I recommend that you commit these verses to memory. At least commit the references. Okay, it's one thing to commit these verses to memory and say, there's one verse that said this, but I, I can't find it now. Okay, you really got to remember those references so you can find it and you can show them. Okay? And so we want to remember those verses, but sometimes they say, well, that's, they, that's still not acceptable to them. And so there's a whole bunch more that we can show them. And this third one, this third truth about who Jesus is, is one of my favorites to look at. It's Jesus is... Yahweh. Okay, Jesus is Yahweh. You probably heard the term Yahweh as a description of God in the Old Testament. That is, God was called, his name was Yahweh in the Old Testament. Now his name was was too revered for the Jews to even utter. And so when they came across the scriptures, 
that had the name Yahweh written down, they would just pronounce or say Adonai, say Lord. And our English translations have maintained that reverence for the name of God. And so if you read your Bible, look through the Old Testament, you're never going to find the word Yahweh there. But you're going to see the word Lord all in uppercase. When you see all the the Lord all in capital letters, that's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. And that Hebrew word I have written on on the bottom of page two in your handout, you'll see some scratchings beside the letters Y-H-W-H because in the Hebrew language they just wrote the consonants. Uh, the vowels are just dots and ticks around those consonants. But you can see the Y-H-W-H and just the right of that, as you look from right to left as you read Hebrew, you see the word Yahweh. Y-H-W-H or Yahweh as they would have pronounced it with a V sound for the W. Now, as we consider that term, that term is significant because that term is only applied. That's the name of God. It's not just describing who God is. Like we say the term God, it's not necessarily God's name, but, but Yahweh was God's name. So this, the creator God, the God of Israel, the one true God is named Yahweh. Now, in the New Testament, that word Yahweh is translated Lord. They kept that same idea. We have all uppercase Lord in the Old Testament because the Jews say Adonai, which means Lord. And the New Testament, when the Jews translated in the New Testament into the Greek, or sorry, when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they would translate it Lord or Kyrios. There's a Greek word for Lord. And so we also see Lord in the New Testament, talking about both Jesus and about the Old Testament name for God, Yahweh. Now, there's a couple of verses that are significant that I want to look at. The first one is Isaiah 40, verse 3, and I have it written down on the bottom of page 2. It says this, A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. And you see the Lord there is all in uppercase. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, Elohim. And so there we have someone in the wilderness crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight a desert, a highway for our God. We recognize, you go to the Old Testament, even if you go there in the New World Translation, it'll say, um, prepare the way of Jehovah. Okay, the name for God, as Jehovah's Witness understand it to be. Make desert a highway for our God. But yet, when you look at Matthew 3, 3, that text talking about Yahweh, talking about God is fulfilled in Jesus. It says in Matthew 3, 3, For this Jesus is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. That is, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make his path straight. And what does John the Baptist say? This is Jesus Christ. This is Yahweh. This is Old Testament God. This is the God of the Israelites. This is the God of the Jews. Now, what's good about this verse too, you can turn to it in the New World Translation and it's exactly the same in Isaiah 40 and in Matthew 3.3. Right there, we have Jesus being ascribed Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the Creator. Not only that, if you turn the page over to page number three, Malachi 3.1. It 
says this, Behold, I send my messenger. Okay, listen to who's speaking. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts, says Yahweh. Okay, so God is speaking here. And what does God say? God is saying, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Who is God's messenger that he's going to send? It's not Jesus. It's John the Baptist. So God is saying here in Malachi, I'm going to send my messenger before me. He's going to prepare the way before me. I am the Lord. And who is the one who comes after John the Baptist? Who did John the Baptist prepare the way for? Jesus Christ. And there we have Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of Old Testament Yahweh God. And we see that in Matthew eleven ten. This John the Baptist is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way before you. So there we have Jesus identifying that messenger as John the Baptist, which means that Jesus himself is God, come to rescue his people from their sins. These verses are so great. And these verses are so definitive. There's no, there's no way you can mistranslate this. That's why if you go to the, the New World Translation, even as they try to remove and deface the divinity, the lordship, the godness, the, divin- the divine of our Lord Jesus Christ, they can't remove it everywhere. And so we can go to these places and we can see quite clearly that Jesus is God. So now we have direct statements of Jesus being God. We have Jesus, the fulfillment of Yahweh come to his people, Emmanuel, God with us. Now we're going to stop here tonight on this point. We're going to look at points 4 to 17, I believe, I think there's 17 in total, um, in the coming weeks as we continue to consider the person of Jesus Christ. Now the first point dealt with Jesus' humanity. Points 2 through 17 deal with Jesus' divinity. And I hope by the time that we finish through these sheets, you'll be like, the Bible is so clear about the person of Jesus Christ. There is no way that anyone looking at this Bible seriously, submitting ourselves, submitting our minds, submitting our wills to the Word of God, could ever walk away and say, Jesus was just a good teacher could ever walk away and say Jesus was just a good example and he was a martyr and he was a social revolutionary. No one can walk around and say Jesus was just an angel. Jesus was just a created being. There is no way. The scriptures do not give us that option. And I hope that you're here for these pages because we're going to see that so clearly. And if not, you have them before you. And I encourage you to study these different passages. And why is it so important? Why is it so important to consider who Jesus is and that he is God? Our salvation depends on it. Our salvation to have Jesus Christ, the God-man, needs to be a human so that he can relate to us. We learned a few weeks ago how, how the Bible describes in Romans 5 how sin entered into the human race through Adam and he was the covenant head. And through Adam, through his representation, guilt is imputed to all of the human race. Now, God did this not to be mean, but rather to set up a second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be a human being just like Adam. But unlike Adam, his gift 
is to impute to us righteousness and justification and life. And he can do this because he is God and his death on the cross is sufficient to pay for our sins because it is so infinitely worthy. And if we do not understand who Jesus is truly as being a human and as being truly God, then we lose the gospel. Then we do not understand what Jesus did. This is so important. So I pray that as we look through this, that it will just delight your heart in worship and that you be so convinced that the scriptures teach the divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.